Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, Drop of Sun Studios in Asheville, North Carolina has put out some of the hottest indie rock records of the year. We talk with one of its co-founders. Uh, Asheville is kind of a special place. It's one of the smallest cities that I've lived in, but it's just incredibly like fertile. There's so many creative people here. The community is definitely what's, what's kept me here. We also visit the Allegheny Highlands, where Appalachia's maple syrup traditions are changing with the times. We're trying to like break the traditions a little bit. People kept asking what you have that's new. Nobody had anything you know that was new. And poet Lacey Snap introduces us to East Tennessee's poetry scene. So many of the community members and my friends are like, I didn't know this many people cared about poetry. <laughs> and we're like, they do, and these are them. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Highland County, Virginia, and its neighbors in West Virginia are some of the southernmost places in the U.S. to make maple syrup. Generations of people in these communities have turned tapping trees for syrup into a long-standing tradition. But modern producers are experimenting with new syrups while adapting to changing demands and a changing climate. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett brings us this story. In late winter in Highland County, maple syrup production is a visible part of the landscape. There are maple trees everywhere, adorned with metal buckets and laced with blue tubing. There's wood smoke rising from the sugar houses. There's a maple sugar road and a sugar hauler and a sugar tree country store. This is the sugar water. Look how clear it is. Pat Lowry and his wife Valerie operate a sugar camp in Highland County called Back Creek Farms. Like many in the area, Pat's family has been making maple syrup here for generations. I was born down the road about three quarters of a mile. Every farm had a sugar shack, and it wasn't mainly for syrup, it was mainly for sugar. Pat started helping his dad with their maple production when he was eight years old. Valerie says he has maple syrup in his veins. And he would make syrup 365 days a year if he could. Each March, Pat and Valerie take part in the annual Maple Festival, where different sugar camps demonstrate the process of making syrup. Did you know this is what comes out of the tree? Have you seen sugar water before? Throughout the county, people make and sell all things maple, from maple donuts to maple barbecue. The festival's been a staple for over 60 years in Highland County, and the tradition of making syrup here started well before that. But over the years, practices have evolved as people like Pat and Valerie apply new ideas and techniques to production. We're trying to like break the traditions a little bit. People kept asking what you have that's new. Nobody had anything you know that was new. It was, yeah, light syrup, medium syrup, dark syrup. So they started experimenting. They aged syrup in whiskey barrels and infused the pure maple syrup with natural flavors like elderberry. At this year's Maple Festival, Pat's boiling down sap, or around here what they call sugar water, while Valerie offers samples to visitors. Now we are going to do chili pepper and ginger. You all are going to try um, the hickory syrup. And hickory is made from the bark of a hickory tree. You'll get this next. So it's made from the bark of a Gary Mongold of Petersburg, West Virginia, has been going to the Highland County Maple Festival since he was a kid. What pulls the people to Highland County Maple Festival was the donuts. I don't know if you found a donut trailer up there or not, but the line is humongous. The line was humongous. But this year, Gary didn't make it to the festival. He's busy with his own operation. It's his second year of making black walnut syrup. I can take you up to here and show you a little better. Gary's showing me around his sugar grove in his side-by-side. His property is full of walnuts situated along a steep hillside that opens out to a panorama view of Petersburg, Moorfield, and Mount Storm. All these trees down under here's got tubing to them. 
then tubing runs all down here and makes a loop and goes down that holler and catches all these walnut trees back in here. The process borrows the basic principles of maple sugaring. You drill a hole, tap a tree, and out comes the sugar water. Gary pumps the sap down the hill using an old dairy pump. When it's boiled down, it transforms into a dark syrup. I can't describe it. It's awesome, I think. A little sweeter, but it leaves a better taste in your mouth. And I, I eat a bowl of ice cream printer every night with about two tablespoons on it. I just dearly love it. I, if I don't watch, I'll eat my profits up. <laughs> Black walnut syrup is an emerging industry, and Gary's one of just a handful of producers in the region. He's been working with Future Generations University out of Franklin, West Virginia, to conduct research on the process. They're trying to figure out the best techniques for production. You see, walnut trees don't produce as much sap as maples, and the sap has less sugar. In short, it takes more to make less. And unlike maple, walnut sap contains naturally occurring pectin, which, when it's boiled down, becomes a thick goo making the syrup difficult to filter. But Gary's undeterred by these challenges, and he's even found a creative use for the pectin. About a year ago, I listened to 89.5 PBS here in Petersburg, and they was talking about the Mayo Clinic working with pectin for arthritis and gout. Gary's had both. So ever since, he's been taking a teaspoon of walnut pectin in his morning coffee. While pectin isn't FDA-approved for this purpose, Gary says it's relieved pain from his arthritis. It's been helping me. Using the pectin, like making the syrup itself, is an experiment. And this season, there's been another variable shaking things up. It hasn't been a very good season for sap to run. Mother Nature has not given us very good weather. Last year, Gary got about 17 gallons of syrup. This year, he added even more taps, but the season's almost over, and so far, he's only gotten five gallons. I'm 63 years old. This is the first year that I remember hardly no snow. We haven't yet to have much snow at all. We ain't even had enough to plow the roads here. In order for the sap to run, you need to have freezing nights and temperatures above freezing during the day. But when we get these climate change like we're having and get a 70-degree day, three 70-degree days in February, that just put a stop to everything. Back in Highland County, Virginia, temperatures in February averaged nearly 40 degrees Fahrenheit, making it the second warmest February on record. Here's Pat Lowry from Back Creek Farms. Honestly, I have, in my 71 years, I have never seen a February like this. Even the more conventional maple syrup producers were forced to adapt, like Doug Puffenbarger and his wife Terry. It's been four or five generations of Puffenbargers back from the 1700s. They're not interested in making different tree syrups or trying out infusions. We don't want to do that. We just want the real deal and that's what we're doing. But this year the warm February dried up production mid-season. So when a cold snap hit in March, right around the Maple Festival, her husband decided to try something different. He retapped his maple trees, drilling new holes in hopes of collecting fresh sap. He's never done that before. With the warm temperatures in February, the climate's changing, and that might be a new thing we're going to do. Gary ended up retapping his walnut trees too. He got five more gallons of syrup, bringing his total for this year up to 10 gallons. And although it's significantly less than last year, he's optimistic. It is kind of risky, I reckon. It's fairly good money when you start selling your product, but uh, I don't look for every year to be bad. There's going to be a lot of good years. And Gary's already thinking about next year. Around this area, tree sap generally runs from the end of January through the end of March. But Gary thinks that pattern might be changing. We're going to try something. It's going to be new. And uh, we're going to try tapping uh, the first week of December. And in Highland County, there's talk of switching the March Maple Festival to earlier in the season, too, when there's a higher likelihood of cold nights, warm days, and sugar water on the boil. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. 
to hear it again or any of our other 130-plus folkway stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. track by Asheville musician Indigo D'Souza from her album All of This Will End, which was released in late April. The indie pop album received a positive response from critics, and it's just the latest in a string of buzzworthy albums by D'Souza's co-producer Alex Ferrer. Ferrer and Adam McDaniel, his partner in Drop of Sun Studios, have produced, mixed, and engineered a slew of critically acclaimed indie rock records with artists like Angel Olsen, Archers of Loaf, Snail Mail, and more. I wanted to find out more about how Alex Fair got into the studio business and what it's like making records amid the Asheville music scene. Alex Fair, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Can you kind of talk about like how you started and how you got into this work? My dad had this little Fostex four track. He would use it to demo out songs and jam around by himself. And he kind of picked up on my interest in showed me how to use it and we'd record like covers of songs together and stuff like that. And um, it just kind of kept growing and growing and eventually moved to Asheville in 2010 to attend uh, UNCA's music technology program and just just recording friends' bands and it just kind of snowballed and snowballed until eventually it just became the only thing that I do. <laughs> you mentioned the UNCA connection. What, what brought you to the mountains and more importantly, what's kept you there? Uh, Asheville is kind of a special place. It's one of the smaller cities that I've lived in, but it's just incredibly like fertile. There's so many creative people here. The community is definitely what's what's kept me here. I, I love the people that that live here, and it just seems like it's it's always like growing and getting more exciting. And um, it's also like just a beautiful place to live. How would you describe the scene in Asheville right now, and and some of the music coming out of the city? You know, there's always been a very heavy, like, experimental music scene here, which I which I love, and it's just always something going on in that world. There's, like, a, a great heavy music scene here and, like, punk and metal and stuff, and I love that sort of shade of Asheville. There's also, you know, Moog and Make Noise Synthesizers are, you know, huge synth companies that are based in town. So that just kind of attracts a lot of creative-minded musicians. But also there's a lot of, like, really amazing just indie rock bands that are killing it, like like Wednesday, Indigo, and MJ. So your studio, Drop a Sun Studios, has been really attached to a lot of these really prominent records coming out of Asheville lately. How did that get started? Yeah, so Drop of Sun was founded by... Um, my studio partner, Adam McDaniel, in 2014, it started in his basement and it was this like tiny room with like low ceilings and just a space that was, uh, you know, it's, it kind of like shouldn't have worked, but it, we made a lot of really great music in that tiny room and it just kind of continued to grow. As time went on, we just kind of kept working on more and more projects. In 2021, we opened up our new location, which is on Haywood Road. Asheville music scene kind of continues to evolve, and we've sort of grown with it, and we're just sort of super thankful to be part of the music community here. Y'all were associated with some really cool recordings in 2021. Do you want to start with Angel Olsen? Or? Yeah, sure. Angel's yeah, EP was great. That was actually one of the very last things that happened at the... Um, initial Drop of Sun location, which is kind of cool. Adam got together with Angel with the idea of doing some covers of like 80s songs and they ended up producing, yeah, this is such a rad, like fun interpretation of all those songs. I could just watch them like picking apart those the songs that you might hear like while you're like grocery shopping or something, but then reinterpreting through the lens of whacked out like synths and um, like how do you make these songs feel like kind of fresh and fun. Eyes without a face. Eyes without a face. Got no human grace. Your eyes without a face. 
And then also that year, Twin Plagues came out from Wednesday, which is the album that at least put that band on my radar. Tell me a little bit about some of your memories working on that record. Uh, that was, record was so much fun to work on. They're the f- most fun people to be in the room with, which is kind of the best thing. You spend a lot of long hours in a studio <laughs> with a band. It's, it's a huge plus if they're all just like funny and kind. When I listen to that record, tell me some of what I'm hearing so far as the Alex Ferrer part. Like Jake Linderman, one of the guitar players, there were so many songs where we would just be like, have a wall of guitar amps, and we'd be trying to like, this riff for this amp and this riff for that amp. Um, so we had so much fun, like um, just figuring out the sounds to fit the songs, and he, he's so down for, for that, <laughs> that search as well, which made it fun. Do you feel something different when a band like that is working with you? Yeah, Wednesday is a great example of a band that I just, I immediately connect with their influences and the sonics of like what they're interested in musically, you know? Like Carly's like a huge like Unwound fan. You know, Jake's a huge pavement guy. And like we would just like kind of go back and forth on like these bands that we loved and like these sounds that we're chasing together. And it, just, it was an immediate connection and um, it just makes it so easy and fun to kind of go on that search with somebody when you feel like you're totally aligned in that way. I assume Jake Linderman is also MJ Linderman, the solo artist. How is it going from working with a band to working with a more individual project like the album Boat Songs from 2022? He is remarkably like driven. He comes in with like a, a plan. The book is like open and, you know, we throw stuff at the wall and we find stuff. But, you know, he came in and we would just like throw down like a scratch guitar and then like throw some drums and just kind of like piecemeal together like this song. And he ends up being like this very full band that's coming through your speakers but it's great to sort of like work on each individual element with somebody and put all these puzzle pieces on the table and then figure out how to put them into like what ends up being like this huge sounding song it's hard to see you fall like that though i know how much of it's an act and this table's ladder So when Jake Linderman and Wednesday came back to do, you know, Rat Saw God, the new album, did it just feel like a continuation or does it feel different with each new recording that you work on with these groups? I think a little bit of both, but the more exciting part of it is I I think I could just totally see that they just continue to get better. Like they're just like there's growth in these, these artists, you know, like Carly's songwriting just continues to get like, it's incredible. They're just like always chasing they're not like settling in a sense like obviously we had a rapport that was already established which is rad but it didn't feel like the same record it felt like you know we're forging our our own path here and we're kind of we're trying we're trying to grow as a band um and make something new I would love yeah. to talk about Indigo to Souza a little bit. Yeah, Indigo is a really incredible songwriter based in Asheville. And yeah, she's been making music, seems like, all her life. I met her through the process of making Any Shape You Take. And Adam McDaniel, along with producer Brad Cook, who is just an incredible, really amazing producer based in Durham, North Carolina. Um, the three of us worked on that record together and... Um, this sort of thing that tied it all together was just, she was just so driven. You know, she's, she's one of those musicians that just doesn't settle for anything. Really just like set on like, you know, this isn't done until it's like the best thing it can be. And I, I love working with someone who has that like drive and, and vision in what they're doing, you know. Who 
else do we want to talk about? What other records that you've worked on? Yeah, there's a couple of bands I would love to shout out that are from North Carolina as well. They have releases that aren't announced yet. Fust is a project um, primarily headed by this, this dude named Aaron Dowdy, who is from Abington. It's just absolutely incredible lyricist, songwriter. Uh, Secret Shame is another Asheville band, and I worked on a record with them that came out earlier this year sometime. They're just like another great example of how kind of wildly fertile and cool, you know, Asheville musicians are. Um, and then Truth Club is, I don't know exactly how I describe them, but it's kind of like, actually, you know what? I will say their, their guitar player described them as a slowcore band that plays too fast. They're kind of like this like whacked out math rock, grungy, indie madness, and they're just so incredible. Alex Fair, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Of course, yeah. Glad to be here. That last track we heard was by Truth Club. Before that, we heard Indigo D'Souza, Secret Shame, Angel Olsen, Wednesday, and MJ Lenderman. For more, check our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, why a bird species in Pennsylvania that's normally shy might be getting closer to humans. Some of the theories in the past was that the birds were drunk. They would eat, you know, old berries from the summer that had had a chance to ferment, and maybe they were a little tipsy, and so they were behaving abnormally. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Ruffed grouse, Pennsylvania state bird, normally hides out in woodlands away from people. But a few bolder birds will get a lot closer. The state's game commission is trying to figure out why. The Allegheny Front's Karaholsopel has this story. Ruffed grouse are wild birds hunted for game, and they like to live in young, dense forests. They're brown, a little bigger than pigeons, and males have a band of dark feathers around their necks that puff up when they want to get a mate. But this time of year, a small subset of birds display another behavior. They're not afraid of humans, leading to the name tame grouse. Raina Tile, a wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, says some people think that's a misnomer. A lot of times they'll, you know, run up to people, even show aggressive pecking, you know, at their pant legs. This spring, the Game Commission is asking the public to report sightings of tame grouse as part of a study. I asked Tile why they think the birds display this behavior. There are a few theories. I will say we don't know exactly what causes it. That's part of what we're hoping to investigate. Some of the theories in the past was that the birds were drunk. They would eat, you know, old berries from the summer that had had a chance to ferment and maybe they were a little tipsy and so they were behaving abnormally because it appears to be more common during the spring breeding season or sometimes in the fall when There's similar amounts of daylight to nighttime. People just thought maybe it was just an aggressive behavior during the breeding season. So, you know, male grouse this time of year become really territorial. The thought was that maybe just that time of year, because their hormones start ramping up for breeding, that they just are more likely to exhibit that behavior towards people. So you're working on a ruffed grouse genetic study with Pennsylvania State University. What are you trying to find out? So the reason this study came about was to try to assess grouse genetic diversity across the state right now. A lot of folks are probably aware, especially if they're grouse hunters or just invested in the resource that the grouse population in Pennsylvania has declined 
over the long term, over several decades, but the last couple of decades, those declines have been a bit more steep due to variety of factors, habitat loss and degradation, and also the introduction of West Nile virus. That disease we think has been pretty detrimental to grouse numbers some years. Given that grouse numbers have declined in some areas and there might be isolated populations on portions of the state that might be a little less connected forest habitat wise, we were just wondering if we were starting to see our grouse population diverge into distinct subpopulations. Capturing these tame grouse kind of it's it's an un, somewhat unexplained behavior. So we thought by capturing them, that could provide us with, you know, more samples for our genetic study. But potentially we were just wondering, you know, could this behavioral difference that we're observing in grouse be explained by genetics as well? And so we kind of figured while we're looking into genetics, we might as well get some samples and see what's going on here. Tyle says they don't keep the grouse. They net them and swab their mouths, just like a human genetic test. She says they've collected samples from four tame grouse so far, with a few more scheduled. The results of the ruffed grouse study could help them target habitat management, which right now, Tyle says, focuses on keeping forest patches connected. That's really what this study will help us figure out is, are there places in the state that are becoming isolated that we need to think about how do we maintain connectivity of these areas to the greater grouse population as a whole so that individuals can move from one to the other successfully and spread their genes around successfully. That was Raina Tile, grouse and woodcock program specialist at the Pennsylvania Game Commission. I'm Kara Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports regional environmental news. With all the warm weather, there's a lot of insect activity across our region this time of year. That includes ant colonies, sometimes found in large mounds of dirt. Stu Johnson at WEKU has this. So an anthill is one thing, but an ant mound can be another. Those ant colony homes can be a foot in diameter or more. In most cases, it may be just what some consider a front yard eyesore. But University of Kentucky entomologist Jonathan Larson says many a mound is beneficial. They do require a lot of food. We have studies that have proven that they cut down on grub po- white grub populations, the, the things that eat your roots of your grass. Uh, they reduce their populations by about 20%. They eat uh, different caterpillar pests that can be in the yard and garden. Larson says care needs to be taken when investigating a large ant mound. Although not prevalent in Kentucky yet, biting fire ants can colonize in such large mounds. I'm Stu Johnson in Lexington. West Virginia's prison system has come under fire for acute staffing trouble, violence, and inmate deaths. But a recent report shows that the number of people incarcerated in West Virginia ranks low among states. Wanda Bertram is communication strategist for the Prison Policy Initiative, which produced the report. WVPB News Director Eric Douglas spoke with Bertram to find out more. This report talks about not just incarceration, but also people on parole and, and, and that sort of thing. What's the big finding from the report in general? What the report does is, you know, we, we're we taking data from different reports that the government has put out Um, that show the number of people in every state who are in prison, in a local jail, on probation, or on parole. We put that together into graphics that apply to every state. And the reason we did this is because you would think that this that you know those numbers would already exist, but because we have a criminal justice system where you know the parole department is handling people on parole, you know there's a probation office that's handling people on probation. All of all of this data is coming from different places, and so there's not really a clear picture that people can get of how many people are caught up in the criminal justice system, and that matters because you know even though we think about probation and parole as sort of different from incarceration, right? Separate. Um, Those systems drive 42% of prison admissions every year. So over 40% of people who go to prison every year are going, they're coming coming to prison from being supervised. So somebody who's violated their parole or they violated their terms of probation and then they're being sent back to or being sent to prison out of that. Right. It's either it's it's um, it's people either who have committed a new crime and they're being sent to prison on a new conviction or they have simply committed a violation with what we call a technical violation, which is where you do something that normally would not be a crime. But because a judge has told you don't do that, 
uh, while you're on supervision, they can get you sent back to prison. And so, and actually the majority of returns to, to incarceration of people on probation and parole are for these technical violations. So Give you me an have, example. Say you are uh, given probation instead of incarceration, but one of the terms of your uh, probation is that you have to complete a drug treatment class. You know, say you don't show up to a couple meetings of that class, that can get you reincarcerated. Say uh, one of the terms of your probation is you have to maintain employment. You try to maintain employment, but you are get you get let go from your job. Um, that theoretically can get you locked up again. These conditions can sometimes get in the way of each other, right? If you uh, have to maintain employment so that you can pay a bunch of fines and fees, but you also have to be going to regular classes and having regular meetings with your supervision officer, which may conflict with your employment, right? It's going to be hard to do all of those things at once. And so you have people that end up behind bars because they just couldn't, they, you know, they, they couldn't maintain all of these conditions. And in fact, there are a lot of people that say, you know, if I am, you know, I'm, if I'm facing a conviction and it's between a short stint in prison and a stint on probation, I would rather be in prison. Let's talk about West Virginia for a minute. What did you, what did you see when you looked at West Virginia? Yeah, West Virginia actually has um, one of the, one of the lower uh, total rates of correctional control of all the states that we looked at. If you're looking at the total number of people incarcerated and supervised. Um, so under the, under, you know, kind of the long arm of the state here, uh, it's West Virginia is per capita, uh, you know, punishing fewer people than some of its, you know, you know, maybe, maybe some of its neighbors like Virginia, <laughs> right. Or Kentucky. The other thing I saw then here uh, in your report says West Virginia confines youth at one of the highest rates in the country. What's that all about? Where Where's that coming from? What we know is over the last 10 years, youth confinement in the U.S. has dropped dramatically. Um, actually, there were six states, although I couldn't tell you what they are off the top of my head, that stopped incarcerating youth entirely during the years of the pandemic. So West Virginia, you know, in in when we say it has one of the highest rates of youth incarceration in the country, the context of this is that there are many states that are no longer putting any youth in detention facilities at all. Um, states are looking at different ways of handling young people who are truant or, you know, um, or, or commit crimes, um, you know, uh, solutions that you can pursue in the community, right. Um, or ways of, you know, just ways of, of, uh, you know, resisting, uh, arresting and incarcerating so many young people. So that's certainly an area where, you know, West Virginia could still move forward. Tell me about West Virginia. If you look at uh, every state's rates of prison and jail and parole and probation, um, what you'll see is that there's, you know, there are there are many states that appear to be uh, a lot better on incarceration rates. That then, when you add in um, probation and parole, they they look a lot worse, right? Or they look um, they stand out, right? So Connecticut, for instance, uh, you compare West Virginia with Connecticut, they have relatively similar incarceration rates, but Connecticut, you add in Right. You add in um, probation, you add in local jails, you add in parole. And all of a sudden you have a much, much higher rate than West Virginia Mm. because Connecticut is putting so many people on probation right now. That was the Prison Policy Initiative's Wanda Bertram speaking with Eric Douglas. To read the report and to hear a longer version of this interview, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Bowling Green, Kentucky, opened its first LGBTQ health clinic one month after the Kentucky General Assembly passed a bill essentially banning transgender care for minors. The new clinic offers gender-affirming care, HIV prevention, and mental health treatment. It also serves as a traditional primary care facility for LGBTQ patients who may have experienced discrimination from other health care providers. WKYU's Alana Watson sat down with the clinic's physician and nurse practitioner. 
Dr. Craig Loeskamp began creating the framework for the LGBTQ clinic in October of 2022, when it became obvious to him that there was a demand for a space where members of the LGBTQ community could find friendly, safe, and competent medical care. Since opening the clinic's doors, Loeskamp says they've had new patients daily. They've seen patients from Somerset, Elizabethtown, Paducah, and even from northern Tennessee. Loeskamp says so far, the feedback has been positive. We'll have people who uh, are basically in tears because they're so grateful that there's a provider who's available who can take care of them. I had uh, one person who, after they left, they later on told me they just sat in their, in their car and cried for a while because they were so moved that finally they felt a place that they could be comfortable with. We, we make a big effort to try to meet them where they are from the get-go. Clinic staff acknowledge people by their chosen pronouns, accepting them for who they are. And Lowe's Camp set up the clinic where patients can contact staff directly, cutting out the number of intermediaries patients could encounter with other practices. They might have been uh, belittled or had untoward comments given towards them. So it's very satisfying to be the person who's able to provide them care. And a lot of it is just everyday kind of stuff, managing diabetes, dealing with asthma, that kind of stuff. And certainly I'm very much hoping to prevent as much as possible any kind of transmission of HIV. There's, there's no reason why anybody should lack the access to care that they catch a, a disease such as that. Trying to make PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, as available to people getting them to understand how it works, educating them on their own personal health and safety. I think that's a, a very important part of it. Sarah Schaus joined the clinic as a nurse practitioner in February. Being a part of the LGBTQ community, she says she knows what it's like to go into a doctor's office and feel a bit uncomfortable. Not get bad care, but just know it's, you know, they're looking at you differently. So it's, it's nice to be a part of this. Here in Bowling Green, it's something I never thought I'd get to do in this area of the state. <laughs> so when I got the chance, I definitely jumped at it. It's always been kind of a goal, uh, an end game of mine as a healthcare provider to do healthcare like this. You just you can't put into words just the ability to to have this clinic here and provide a safe space and accessible space for people to come and just get everyday care. You know, I mean, aside from from all the politics and everything, like people just want to be taken care of. Lowe's camp testified to members of Kentucky's House and Senate during the last legislative session, hoping to encourage lawmakers not to pass Senate Bill 150, which is scheduled to go into effect this summer. Lowe's camp says the legislation is a big intrusion on the personal lives of patients and parents. One of the remarkable things is that most adolescents don't even need any medication. They just need to be treated like a human being and they have a comfortable, safe place to be. They don't need to be on hormones or hormone blockers or anything like that. Unfortunately, a lot of out-of-state gender-affirming care providers aren't accepting out-of-state patients. So like if, say, you're a parent in Kentucky and you have a 16-year-old transgender child and you're trying to find some place within a reasonable driving distance so that you can take them to, a lot of places won't accept them. They're afraid of being involved in litigation. So it's a big scramble to try to help these people, parents and kids alike. Loeskamp says he has patients who are considering moving to other states because of Senate Bill 150. And, and that's not even adolescent people. This is, this is people who are in their 20s and 30s. They feel that the climate here is so contrary to their well-being that they're looking to move elsewhere. I've, I know of patients who are in the process of moving to the Pacific Northwest, people who are moving to the, the Northeast as well. And it's, it's a shame because these are people who are part of the community and it's a, a bit of a cultural drain on, on people. And I suppose that might be part of the rationale of the legislation. 
erase a certain group of people, make them unwelcome and make them feel like they have to move away and pity the poor person who can't. Kentucky's anti-trans bill won't impact what Bowling Green's LGBTQ clinic currently does for most of its patients, but there is a worry about future legislation. Missouri and Oklahoma have made moves to ban transgender care for all age groups. The biggest concern going into the future is just what happens in the political climate. I hope that I can instill in people a level of self-confidence and self-worth in them that they can really engage in their own lives and their own health care. I can only do so much as a physician in the community. And the more people come together and look after their own self-interests. I mean, unfortunately, if people don't try their best to stand up for themselves, it's quite obvious that there's going to be other people out there who trample their rights and their, their quality of life. I try to emphasize the importance to vote to people, make, make sure that they make their voices heard because it affects them on a very personal, individual level. Just to tag on to that, you know, I encourage patients just, you know, just to come in. You know, we do regular everyday health care. You know, you don't have to feel like, um, you know, you're needing care for anything extra or, oh, if I'm not trans, I can't come. Or, you know, if I don't need prep, like, you know, that's it's not the clinic for me. Again, we're just emphasizing a safe, accessible space for people to come and feel comfortable in. You're going to come here and you're going to feel welcome. You're going to feel, you know, at home, hopefully. You know, we see time and time again where minority groups are targeted uh, for political reasons, and this is no different. I always tell my patients, you know, change is coming. It's slow, but it comes. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. And also thank you for allowing me to sit in the Dr. Spinney chair. I cannot tell you (laughs) how much that means to me. It's very exciting. You're very welcome. The ACLU of Kentucky is challenging the state's anti-trans law in court. The law is set to go into effect at the end of June. In Bowling Green, I'm Alana Watson. Poet Lacey Snap lives in Johnson City, Tennessee, where she teaches American literature and composition at East Tennessee State University. She's also a woodworker. It's a craft she picked up from her father's side of the family in western North Carolina. Producer Bill Lynch first met SNAP at the Appalachian Studies Conference in Athens, Ohio. She was there to talk about her work with a group that makes poetry more accessible to the public. Bill recently caught up with SNAP to talk poetry, woodworking, and poetry pub crawls. But first, a reading. Divined good, after Maeve McGuckin's The Nightingale. To the moon that nearly rotted, I still tried to eat you whole as I would a peach, I dare, and the juices that dribbled down my shirt, dripping off beige buttons, burnt my skin to the touch. Who knew that rotting moon juice would sear so surely? Who knew that it had any power at all? I suspected peaches have power. At my grandmother's house in Knoxville, they lure animals to climb trees. Squirrels, birds, rats grind the fruit in their small mouths. Rabbits gobble up orbs down from the dwarf trees. Raccoons scale trunks and use sharp teeth to quicken their hungry stomachs. Even the silent deer can stretch their necks to reach the lowest branches. Do they dare? They tease off the low-hanging moons with the gentlest ease. The oldest spirit standing in this open field is my oldest gift. My grandmother's grandmother planted this tree for me. How could she know I'd wait too long to harvest the fruit so that it bruised and softened, so that the communing deer and I have to eat around the bad parts? But the good, that ancestral divined good, is worth the tedious ceremony, is worth the wealth of moon juice that burns our spread lips at its touch. That's a slice of Appalachia right there. I can, <laughs> I can hear it in all of it. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. So. Tell me about that poem. What, what does it come from? Yeah, it's funny. So um, I've written a lot about my dad's side of the family, which came from the Shelton's of North Carolina. Um, and then they came over to East Tennessee. Um, and my mom's always saying, like, why do you never write about my side of the family? 
Um, and so she had like an ancestral home in Knoxville where she grew up. So this, this is me trying to write about a memory there, which had to do with they had this uh, peach tree and apple trees in the backyard and you could just go pick uh, fruit off of it. But I loved that line from Maeve McGuckin's poem, To the Moon That Nearly Rotted. And that just sat with me for a long time. And so I wanted to to respond to that. Your writer's life. When did you start with poetry? Actually, in, in like elementary school, I started writing songs and, and just little things like that. My elementary school uh, teacher, Mrs. Bott, she would, you would take like wallpaper and then you would put paper in it and then fold it over and staple it and make these little journals that you had to write in every day. And I loved doing that. And so I have all these old journals. So it kind of started at a young age and then fell off. I mean, I wrote songs and stuff um, until I went to college and then really picked back up. I was a creative writing major in undergrad at UTC. So yeah, I really kind of picked up there. And now I'm almost done with my MFA. I have two more months. So <laughs> hoping to get through the finish line. Yeah. You mentioned that you, I guess your mom was complaining about always running about your father's side. So what kind of themes or, or topics are you drawn to as a poet? In that gap few years between undergrad and my first master's, I said, I want to get away from writing and a desk and all the stuff um, and, and take up woodworking because my dad is a woodworker, his grandfather, his great grandfather, all of these kind of people. It's, it's a, a trade that's kind of been passed down in my family. And so I wanted to do it too. So yeah, it just took years of kind of engaging with the natural world and learning a trade and just not thinking about writing. So when I returned, a lot of the those poems were about woodworking and were about like different species of wood that remind me of different family members or like I'm, I'm seeing these correlations. So uh, my first chapbook, Shadows on Wood, kind of dives into that. How can you find identity in the natural world and, and me see these kind of family stories come from that. So since getting in my MFA, I, I went into it saying, I don't want to write another wood poem. What else can I write? And my dad even asked, he's like, can you write anything else? And I'm like, God, I hope so. Yeah, a lot of this has been trying to find what else I have to say. But it's been nice because now kind of finishing the degree, I'm returning to the wood poems, but it doesn't feel like like they'll just kind of pop up and it'll feel nice of like, oh, okay, I can write this and get to like take time with it and, and savor it for something special rather than it feeling like, oh no, is this all I can do? So yeah, a lot of it has been about my dad's side of the family because I've heard those stories and seen those characters all my life so reading poetry out loud uh getting in front of, of, of people to read it mm -hmm. that's a whole different thing what was that like and when did you start doing that so I used to dance uh, and do dance. So being on the stage wasn't really new to me, but I stopped dancing. And so getting back on the stage to do poetry just felt very natural. Um, but it's actually funny, in between undergrad and I did a master's at ETSU, I didn't write at all. I just stopped writing for a few years because I didn't have a community. And then whenever I started going to ETSU, I heard about uh, the Johnson City Poets Collective, which is a group that has monthly open mics. And I started going to those and then I started writing for those um, and wanting to have something new. So now in a crazy series of events, um, I actually helped to run it. And so now I'm the one helping to put on these uh, monthly open mics. And it's just so special because I get to help like create the space that really cultivated my writing and return to writing for others. So um, yeah, I do open mics once a month, mostly hosting them, but I do sneak um, a slot in for myself to try okay. out new stuff. Yeah. The Johnson City Poets Collective. So yeah. tell me more about that. So we actually presented on it at the ASA. That was our panel was to talk about the Johnson City Poets Collective and its start uh, to where it is now. So it's been going on in some capacity for 20 years. It, it kind of started as a slam poetry thing here in town and then now is this open mic space. So it happens once a month at the historic Down Home, uh, which is a music venue here in Johnson City. And yeah, we have usually 20 readers per night. Each reader gets up to four 
four minutes. It's about a two-hour event. Sometimes it goes on a little bit longer, but people are allowed to get up and do read whatever for those four minutes. But it's been really fun because in the past few years, we've been trying to grow the events. So we actually uh, put on poetry pub crawls around town where uh, it's tied in with a poetry contest. So submitters write a poem, send it in, a panel of judges pick the top 10, and then those top 10 are invited to read at our poetry pub crawl. So we collaborate with local breweries for us to come take over their space for an hour, people buy beer, and we allow the submitters to read their poems out in the public. I mean, it's a really cool thing for the community. We just had our second one this past year and had like 60 people crawling around town with us, which so many of the community members and my friends are like, I didn't know this many people cared about poetry. (laughs) And we're like, they do. And these are them. So yeah, it's a really special group. The Johnson City Poets Collective meets every third Wednesday at the Down Home in Johnson City, Tennessee. It's got an open door policy. So if you stop in, Maybe bring along a poem. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Blassard, Lucero, Indigo D'Souza, Secret Shame, Angel Olson, Wednesday, MJ Lenderman, Truth Club, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.